0: Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey there, it's me, Amara Jones. Before we get to the heart of our show, I just wanted to urge you to go check out my new PBS docuseries, American Problems, Trans Solutions. Through this docuseries, we show how Black trans leaders are tackling some of the most pressing issues of our time, including affordable housing, housing, trans rights, and the plight of immigrants, and they're doing so with hope and real solutions. So when you have a minute, go to pbs.org, type in American Problems, Trans Solutions in the search, sit back, and be inspired. Hey there, it's me, Amara Jones. Welcome to the TransLash Podcast, a show where we tell trans stories to save trans lives. Well, we've just entered Transgender Awareness Month, which will culminate on November 20th, which is Trans Day of Remembrance. And while during this month we generally focus on those who have been lost to violence and why they have been lost to violence and ways that we can prevent that violence. We also know that it is an important time to give people's flowers while they are here. That's why I'm thrilled that this episode of the Translash podcast will be a conversation with Raquel Willis, the one, the only, to talk about her new book, the risk it takes to bloom, the risk that it takes for us to become the flowers that we are. It is a powerful read, written with trans youth in mind. So I can't wait to get into this conversation with her and for you all to hear all of the gems that will get you through the darkness of the times that we are living in right now that will be given through the conversation with Raquel.
2: I learned that these moments where life feels the hardest can actually be moments of activation, and they can actually be moments that we use as fertilizer to hopefully plant seeds that maybe will lead to some kind of blooming down the road.
1: But before we get into the rich dialogue with Raquel, let's start out as always with some trans joy. Now, we usually use this segment to highlight the work of trans and gender nonconforming people and organizations. But today, we wanted to celebrate a very special ally, Raquel's mother, Dr. Marilyn DeVoe Willis. Dr. Willis is an internationally recognized and award-winning educator and community service leader. She spent over 30 years teaching and working in administration at Augusta Technical College in Georgia and currently serves as the diversity, equity and inclusion committee co-chair at PFLAG. But outside of her many leadership positions and awards, Dr. Willis sees her most important role as being a mother. Here she is telling us more about what it was like to love Raquel through her transition, helping Raquel to bloom.
0: When it all boiled down with the family, it was uh, about me and my husband being parents, loving parents to our child, trying to get the words, trying to get the education, trying to be able to convey to her that we loved her no matter what her declaration was. And the joy of being yourself and showering your child with all the love you have inside and just waking up every day and thanking God that we are still together and we are still loving each other, loving on each other and want each other in every aspect of our lives. You know, whatever the world brings at you, you know you can deal with it because you have your mom and I have my child. Dr. Willis,
1: You are trans joy. I'm so excited to talk with award-winning author, activist, and media strategist, and more, Raquel Willis. Raquel has served as the director of communications for Ms. Foundation for Women, executive editor of Out Magazine, and a national organizer for the Transgender Law Center. She's currently an executive producer at iHeartMedia's Outspoken Network and serves as president of the Solutions Not Punishment Collaborative's executive board. Raquel made history as one of the lead organizers of the March for Black Trans Liberation in Brooklyn in 2020 that rally was the largest of its kind for trans rights and equality in the history of the United States, with over 20,000 participants. But that's not all. Raquel also co-founded Trans Week of Visibility and Action and sits on the WNBA Social Justice Council. For all of these reasons, I am so thrilled that she has also written her debut memoir, The Risk It Takes to Bloom on Life and Liberation, which goes on sale November 14th. In it, she gives us a peek into many of her life's turning points, as well as how it all started. Raquel, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be on.
1: I know that this book for you has been a long time coming, so congratulations first and foremost. It is, it is no small feat.
2: Thank you. You're absolutely right. It's definitely a labor, we'll say, of love right now.
1: (laughs) Yes, I'm sure that you would have described it as a different type of labor, depending on when we've spoken to you. But it's good that at this point, it's a labor of love. You begin the book with a poem by Elizabeth Apple, which reads, And then the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to Bloom. I'm wondering how you came up with the idea of looking at your life through the lens of A Risk to Bloom. Mm.
2: I didn't encounter that poem through Elizabeth's work. I didn't know who Elizabeth was really until I started researching the poem deeper. I actually first encountered it listening to Alicia Keys, The Element of Freedom in College. And <laughs> I believe it was my freshman year. And it was my first time at the University of Georgia, just like away from home. I had come out as gay at 14. I had been itching to get out of Augusta, Georgia, because I just assumed that my life would open up in a different way outside of that context. I could live my best queer life, so to speak. And that Opener that Alicia Keys did drew on this poem. Now she changed the original word blossom to bloom. And so that stayed with me. And as I started writing about my childhood, I just associate nature with being from the South, with being from Georgia, just like all of the afternoons I spent in our backyard. And I remember being obsessed for a period over these flowers on this magnolia tree that our neighbor had. And and the branches would reach over our fence in the backyard, and they just were these velvety flowers. They had this strong fragrance. But I also remember feeling like I couldn't say that I thought they were beautiful or that I was... Drawn in by them because those were girl things. Flowers were girl things. Beautiful things were girl things. And as someone being raised as a little black boy in the South with traditional parents and all of these Catholic expectations, I was already feeling the restrictions of the world. And so that stayed with me. And so I I think it became a beautiful callback as I thought about the rest of my life throughout the rest of the writing of all of these moments where I had to take risk I had to take risk to own my trans identity I had to take risk to embark on a journalism career. I had to take risk to speak on that women's March stage and on and on even to the stage for the march for black trans lives that you were just speaking about so, yeah, I, I think that that element of blooming is just a beautiful thing, but it does take work and it it does take an immense amount of conviction to make that blooming happen.
1: There's so many places to go based upon that. I mean, You even touched upon the, one of the words that I had written down to explore with you, which was expectation. So we'll come back to that. But let's go back to the place where you start, and so many of the expectations swirl for you. Even the title of your first chapter, which is Four Blue Walls, Mm. which is where you and your brother actually shared a room. Mm -hmm. And in that, both the color, the placement of what people assigned your gender with another sibling who was also assigned male at birth, all of that kind of speaks to these early expectations that you had within those literally four blue walls, both physically and psychologically. And I'm wondering if you can just take us through what those layers of expectation, what those restrictions for you to bloom were as someone who was raised as Black, Southern, Catholic, and male.
2: Yeah, it's been a very crucial thing for me in this book to flesh out my origins. I, I think especially as trans people and and even more as Black trans people, we're often stripped of our origin and our context in a way, right? Like we're given the origin of maybe what we were assigned at birth, but we're often not given much else. And so for me, it was important to showcase what I mean when I say that I'm Southern. I mean that I am from Augusta, Georgia. I am from parents who were really the first generation to kind of move farther away from home at certain points, to go off to college outside of their hometown, to kind of have a different access to upward mobility in this kind of middle-class sense as Black folks from the South who were coming into their own in 1970s Atlanta. I mean, my parents met at Morris Brown College, which if folks don't know is an HBCU that's in the same kind of center as Spelman or Morehouse. Those are the parents I'm coming from. Parents who had all of these dreams of like essentially building this Black American dream of a family and of a legacy. And I think as someone growing up in the 90s and early 2000s who was coming into their own out of that frame, someone who, you know, being raised as a little boy, being assigned male at birth, but also being gender nonconforming, being queer in a sense, being all of these things that I didn't have language for or tools for, and neither did my parents. That is what I'm really trying to flesh out in this early part of the book. And I'm also sharing that my parents are the bridge between generations of folks who are only, you know, slightly removed from our people who were enslaved in the South And so we're carrying that history. I'm talking about growing up in Georgia with the remnants of essentially the Confederacy. I mean, if you think about this one line where I talk about the Georgia state flag having elements of what we consider to be the larger marker of the Confederacy, the Georgia state flag had those markers in it throughout the duration of my parents' lives up until about 2001. And so I'm dealing with all of those remnants of white supremacy of black subjugation and oh I'm also gender nonconforming and queer being bullied at school and I'm living with this sense that like if I embrace my queerness if I embrace what makes me different if I embrace my femininity then I'm only going to make my life harder. And that's not even getting into the religious aspect where I'm in a family that is hella Catholic. I mean, we're sitting in the front pew every Sunday. My parents speak to the priest after every mass and they're also teaching religious courses at the church. So I'm dealing with all of these expectations. I mean, honestly, it's more than just those four blue walls. There are so many other walls that are serving as restrictions for me to fully express myself.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that these are all things that you definitely touch upon and which are revealed kind of in the book is really pivotal themes. One of the dynamics in your life and in your book is this courage that you display at so many different times and having and embracing experiences that push forward your blooming, right? That push forward your unfolding. And then a lot of times a guilt associated with those things, right? Feeling guilt or shame. And I'm wondering if you can talk about the way in which your being raised Catholic intersects with that, because also that's a unique combination. I mean, there are Black Catholics. I knew Black Catholics growing up in Atlanta. They were very close friends of my family. I went to Mass with them all the time. Uh, So there are Black Catholics, but it's not you know, shall we say a large group of people and it is a unique community within Black Southern culture. And I'm wondering if you can just talk about this interplay between, you know, courage and then a reaction of shame and guilt that you felt and the way that being Black and Catholic made that true.
2: When I think about why my family was Catholic, I mean, a huge part of that is because my father went to a local Catholic school when he was growing up. And so... That was kind of the underpinning of why later on our family was Catholic. My mom converted to the denomination and became very involved. It was always an interesting experience because the dominant frame for Black folks in America is that our people will be some type of Protestant, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's Baptist or AME or... Pentecostal or something else. So I was very aware as a kid that it was a bit atypical for us to be Black and Catholic because I would look around our congregation and I would see mostly white families. We definitely had sizable section of Korean families. We had a sizable section of brown, Latinx families, but overall it was a white congregation in general. And if there were Black families, most of them were Black immigrant families. And so to be Black American in that space, and when I say Black American, I mean kind of from this lineage of enslaved folks in the South, it was very interesting context.
1: Yeah. On this idea of being very conscious about how you're perceived, there was one incident in the book where you described As a part of the unfolding, and I think that that's one of the really important idea, again, in this book is how the way that you arrived at your identity was through a series of unfolding like a blossom, right? It's not like it was something that you had a very clear idea on in the beginning. It's that you experienced life digging into how you felt and then letting those feelings guide you to who you were supposed to be, like literally an unfolding, right? That's that's how I experienced a lot of the things that you describe in your book. And one of the key moments in understanding that you were different very early on was this experience that you had with another boy when you all had to strip down. And then after that, you know, you kind of washed your mouth out with dial soap because, you know, it was a feeling of being ashamed or something that that was you know, not good. But that set you on the path of understanding that you were different. And I just think that the quote that you have here is really powerful because it kind of sets the stage for a lot of your life through college. When you say that after that experience, quote, over the next few years, my inner world expanded, separating from the masculine expectations of everyone around me. My peers became more beholden to the gender binary while I somehow stayed in an undefined space. After you had this experience, which shifted your own notion of where you fit in gender-wise, how you began to live literally the next phase of your life?
2: I think that period of an undefined space was interestingly... I, I mean, some key elements of my personality came into place for sure. But I definitely think um, that was really where I started to develop a, a kind of sardonic sense or sarcastic sense mm. in how I communicated with other folks. There, it, there was always this underpinning of like, this is all bullshit. <laughs> You know, and I I think I held on to that so hard and so fiercely. It's quite interesting, actually, when I started to come out of that space, I would talk to peers and they'd be like, oh, I thought you hated me for so long. Or You know, like all of these different things. And I was like, no, honey, like I was dealing with my own things at that time. And I would say from about that age of around seven or nine to like really... Maybe my sophomore year of high school, I was in this shell and and I was just absorbing everything around me. I was trying it, it almost was a state of freeze. You know how there's this sense of like fight, flight or freeze. My response was essentially to freeze. No sudden movements. And so much of that came from the fear of being bullied or told that I was moving in a feminine way or in a gay way or that I sounded fruity or any of these other kind of epithets that were hurled at potentially queer people during this 90s and 2000s period. It was so hard for me to... Connect with my peers because I just assumed that I would be judged, particularly by boys, you know? And so I gravitated forever to girls because I felt like the expectations weren't the same there. And I think now as I'm older, I'm like, well, maybe there was some kind of like innate essence that kind of brought a lot of the girlfriends that I had brought their um, shields down. And so they just kind of brought me into the fold and there was warmth there. But I think I also just kind of developed this fear around how men and boys would react to me because I felt like an imposter. I was an imposter Like on paper, I'm supposed to be like one of you, but I'm really not. And on some level, some of you know that. And that's why you react to me a certain way. But I don't have the tools or the language to tease out what that difference is. And so it's so interesting to look back now because I'm like, I think I felt like I was a bit of a spy. I don't know for what organization or what institution. I guess it was for queer and trans liberation, even though I didn't know it yet.
1: One of the marks of courage that you had was coming out at 14, telling your mom. And within the context of everything that we've discussed, that's a big deal. And one of the things that I didn't know, of course, I didn't know a lot before reading this book, but never even had an indication was, is that from the way that I saw it, among your mom's first reaction was to engage in a form of, of conversion therapy. At least that's what I saw it as, the therapist that she chose for you all who was grounded in part in, you know, Christianity and all these other things. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about what that experience was like because there'll be so many people that read this book who are young. There are going to be a lot of trans youth who read this book who have experienced something like that. And I'm wondering if for you, can you talk about how you saw it at the time and what your experience was like? We, of course, know that you come out on the other end, and your mom certainly does. But can you just talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. You know, I've never really considered my mom's first attempt to kind of make sense of my sexual orientation, at least at that time, as conversion therapy. And I'm mm. hes—I'm hesitant to say that now, too, as well. But I think that's because I often have this frame that conversion therapy tends to be intentional. Mm. And so maybe that's not fair. You know, maybe unintentionally she did put me in a situation that was some sort of conversion therapy. But I do know the intent. And I, I think the intent wasn't actually to try and change me or necessarily make me not be queer. I got a lot of mixed messages during that time. I think my mom in her heart was like, I love you for who you are. You should be who you are. And those are the messages that both of my parents instilled in me was like, you need to be An independent thinker, don't follow the crowd, be yourself. And then on the other hand, we're like most other parents, and maybe even still now, right? Who are told that people should be straight, like that is normal. And if your kid isn't, what does that mean about your parenting? I think that that was a lot of the messages that my parents were holding, But with my mom, when she took me to this counselor who was a religious counselor, I think the choice, and we've talked about it since then, I think the choice around that particular counselor wasn't necessarily that she was choosing him so that he would convert me to straightness. I think it was that in her mind, she was Catholic, she was Christian. And so it made sense to go to someone with a Christian lens. And I don't think that she understood the longstanding history and context of Christianity being used to be harmful to queer and trans people. I actually don't think that my parents had that frame necessarily. There definitely were these ideas that like the Bible says this about queerness And this is what we heard sometimes in church because around this time, a lot of the discussions around civil unions were happening nationally. So every now and then we'd have a visiting priest who would talk about the sanctity of marriage. You know, this is the whole kind of Defense of Marriage Act era, this George W. Bush era. And so that was in the ether. But... I don't think my parents really understood that context completely. And I definitely don't think that my mom did. But I will say, I think my mom had to take some risks along the way as well, which also unfolds throughout the rest of the book to affirm and love her child for who she is. And I can concede that Yeah, I I imagine that it's a lot to birth someone and have this idea of who they're going to be and how their life will unfold and have all these dreams for them and then be told that actually that's not how it's going to play out and have to completely reframe their life. I mean, I do think that there is a mourning and a grieving that my mom had to go through around who she thought I was going to be. And I'm so grateful that she fully committed to that process. Because now on the other side, I'm so glad that she's been a part of these different pieces of my life that I would not have achieved or experienced if I hadn't taken some of those early risks to bloom.
1: Another risk to bloom that you took another unfolding is the manifestation of Rebel DeVoe. And I'm wondering if you can tell (laughs) our audience about Rebel DeVoe and what she meant to you in terms of your development with respect to gender identity.
2: Yes, Miss Rebel, honey. (laughs) So when I went off to college at the University of Georgia in that first semester, really wasn't as involved in the LGBTQ plus student community because I was a bit intimidated. I I felt like most of them were uh, what we would call upperclassmen. I think we should probably move to saying upperclass people, but we'll go there. Looking back now, I think a lot of it was that many of the students who came into their queerness or transness might not have been there when they first started at the school. And it was in the later years of their college experience where they would maybe feel more open to fully express themselves and join the LGBTQ student events. But when it came to the end of that first semester... I gave the student group a- another chance and moved through my anxieties. And one of the meetings I went to, I met a drag queen and a drag king. And it just completely blew my mind. The drag king was a young trans masculine student. And he was telling us all about his experiences and kind of the delineation between drag performance and being a trans person. And then the drag queen for her part at one point in this meeting came up to me and, you know, kind of analyzed me and was like, oh, you'd be great for drag. And it was a very unsettling exchange, but it did plant a seed. And so that next semester... I started performing as a drag queen in the student drag show. And that was how Rebel DeVoe was born. And I really see drag performance as a place where I was able to play with gender and start to come to terms with all of these Expectations and restrictions that didn't serve me. I think on the stage and being dolled up in this sense and essentially having the shield of a character actually gave me more freedom to kind of flesh out that, oh, actually, I'm not getting my life completely because this is performance. I'm getting my life because I get to fully delve into my femininity in a way that I was always told I was never supposed to. And what I will add is that I did for years after I started my career want to kind of bury a bit my drag history because I feared that that history would be weaponized against me to invalidate my womanhood. So it actually is a big exercise and risk for me at this point in my life to be like, no, actually, drag was a bridge for me to understand my gender identity. And I actually don't think that that is atypical. I think there are a lot of trans people for whom drag can be a bridge. I think the pageant world can be a bridge. I think... Of course, ballroom world and walking certain categories can be a bridge for us to understand our identities.
1: I thought that it was a really important thing for you to include, if I can just say that straightforwardly, because there's so many ways in which people will look at you now and say, oh... Raquel Willis is the example of what it means to be within the trans binary, right? Mm -hmm. And is a trans woman and is kind of that as how people can see you and interpret you from all different gender identities. And what I think is so powerful about the story that you've told here is really about this unfolding and an unfolding is a journey and a part of being trans no matter where we end up on the spectrum is actually breaking the gender binary we have to break the gender binary in some way to be ourselves and one of the things that you're very explicit about is that breaking the gender binary embracing the fact that in many ways you don't conform to gender you spent a lot of your life actively not conforming to gender I actually want to go back in time and see Raquel with the mohawk Um, (laughs) you know that is so many ways maybe one day (laughs) Maybe one day. Uh, And so many ways that you you actually spent your life outside of the binary and tell that as a part of your journey, I think is really, really, really important, especially when there are so many conversations about the policing of womanhood and even the policing of trans womanhood. I think including that in your story is a really vital contribution right now.
2: It is. I I definitely think it is. And I totally hear you. I mean, I I do think that This idea that I'm a very binary example of transness um, is valid and interesting, but I also do think it lacks a bit of nuance, because I don't think that the problem is whether someone is more binary or not. I think the problem is, is when people weaponize the ease in which they may be able to move through the world to say that other people's experiences of transness on the spectrum or non-binary people are invalid. I hate that frame. And I know that there's a lot of discussion and discourse intracommunally about this, but I am unapologetically invested in dismantling the binary. I am unapologetically invested in dismantling the cis-heteropatriarchy, which I think both of those go hand in hand.
1: There are so many more places for me to go with you in this book, and I could do this for easily another hour and a half, but I don't have an hour and a half. Sadly, you don't have an hour and a half. And I'm glad that we've spent a lot of the time speaking about the parts of your story that people may not know. There are clearly more well-known parts of your story that people will recognize, and you take us behind the scenes in that. But these other essential pieces that you take us into into yourself are, um, I think, really powerful. And I'm glad we've had a time to unpack at least those. But one of those, which is also less well-known, but really is a turning point both in the book, in terms of how the book is written, and in terms of your life is the passing of your father. It is where you change the style of the book in a way and begin to introduce letters to people who have passed, people that you've known and people that you didn't know. And it starts with a letter to your father and then moves through to trans people who have been murdered, which connects to your activism. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about how confronting the death of your father led you to view life differently and spurred you into being an activist.
2: The passing of my father was really a moment where I realized that I was still holding on to these shards of expectation and chasing this idea that, okay, well, I could be, maybe I could grow up into a gay man and like still fill out this portrait that my parents wanted for me. Maybe I could get married and build a family and maybe the only thing that would be different would be that I was gay and I could make up for the fact that I was gay. And I won't say that I completely shedded all of that because I think even maybe up until at least about 30, so like a couple of, like two years ago, Um. I was still chasing this idea that like... If I achieve a certain amount or I do this thing or do that thing, then maybe I will make up for the fact that I'm trans. Maybe I can overcompensate. And in some ways, I was still trying to meet some of those expectations. So I don't want anyone to think that when I talk about the death of the expectations with my father around Black masculinity, that all of the expectations went away. I actually think that that's a crucial part of living is that we continuously shatter expectations. We continuously take risks to bloom. So even though I end with a section in the memoir about blooming, that doesn't mean that I I have stopped, that I have reached maximum bloomage, if you will. That's just where we are with this story, but there are many more stories to come. Um, But I I think you're absolutely right that when my father passed and I had to mourn and, and grieve his existence, it was a turning point for me in thinking about how I needed to listen to myself on a deeper level, live life on my own terms, and radically alter the conditions so that I could actually more fully enjoy my life. I was never going to fully enjoy my life trying to ignore my gender identity. Hmm. I'm fleshing out how I could still love him, even though I rejected the expectations that he had for me. And I think on a continuing note with that letter and the letters that came after, the letter to Leela Alcorn, a young trans teen who died by suicide in 2014, the letter to China Gibson, a Black trans woman who was murdered in 2017, the letter to Layleen Polanco, a 27-year-old Afro-Latina who died in Rikers custody in 2019. I learned that these moments where life feels the hardest can actually be moments of activation. And they can actually be moments that we use as fertilizer to hopefully plant seeds that maybe will lead to some kind of blooming down the road. And I think along the way, fully latching on to how these moments impacted me allowed that to happen.
1: Lastly, I'm wondering if you've ever thought about what you would say to your father right now, if you could, as your fully actualized self. Actually, he and your grandmother, who died shortly thereafter, you mentioned in the book that people thought that maybe she died of a broken heart because she was so close to to your dad. But to both of them, you know, you refer to her as your third parent. What do you think that you would say to them, right now, as your actualized self, if you could?
2: I love them. I understand them. I'm able to give them grace. And I would tell them that I have built a beautiful life. And I know that you didn't always know that that might be possible, but I have. And I have nothing but gratitude for what you imparted in me, the lessons, the strength, the conviction the spiciness the sassiness all of that i have nothing but immense gratitude
1: i have built a beautiful life well that beautiful life is detailed in your book and i just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about it i think that a lot of people are going to get a lot out of the risk it takes to bloom and thank you for being vulnerable and taking the risk to talk about it today. Raquel, thank you so much and congratulations. That was now author Raquel Willis. Thank you for joining me on the Translash podcast. Now listen all the way through to the end of the show for something extra. If you like what you heard, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. You can listen to Translash wherever you get your podcast. Check us out on the web, translash.org, to sign up for our weekly newsletter. Follow us on X, I'll never get used to saying that, and Instagram at Translash Media. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends. The Translash podcast is produced by Translash Media. That's us. The Translash team includes Oliver Ash Klein and Aubrey Calloway. Xander Adams is a contributing producer to the show and our sound engineer. Brennan Beckwith is our social media producer, and digital strategy is handled by Daniela Capistrano. The music you heard was composed by Bendragi, and also courtesy of ZZK Records. The Translash podcast is made possible by the support of foundations and listeners like you. So what I'm looking forward to in the next week is going to an event hosted by Equality Texas down in Texas to give an award to a local leader. Um, I love events like this because so much of what's being um, decided about us is being uh, done so in communities large and small all across the country. There are um, trans and gender non-conforming people and LGBTQ people and the people who love and support us who are doing this work often unsung um, and without a lot of support. So the fact that you know we can go to Texas and celebrate someone who is doing this in a place where the odds are very long and it's very painful gives me a lot of joy. So that's going to be fun. I mean, who doesn't like giving somebody an award?